Welcome to the Dissolve Podcast, Episode 16, A Bad Time to Be a Purist Edition, with your host, Tasha Robinson, Senior Editor at the Dissolve. This week, we're thinking about the ways in which films are converging on TV and asking, is it time to start running in circles, screaming in terror, or can we deal with the latest cultural evolution like adults? We'll also talk with Entertainment Weekly columnist and Pictures at a Revolution author Mark Harris about his new book, Five Came Back. We return to our game Parental Guidance Suggested, with a special edition of Films That Need More Parental Guidance Than Most, then wrap with our competitive recommendation segment, 30 Seconds to Stay tuned. When HBO's True Detective hit big, many critics called the show's first season a terrific eight-hour movie, thanks to the cinematic ambition of the script, the direction, and the casting, which included movie stars Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson. But while many TV series are looking and behaving more like films, focusing on telling one single long story, movies are moving in the opposite direction. TV spinoffs like Serenity and Veronica Mars look like extended TV episodes, and ever since the Lord of the Rings movies proved that the series model could work on the big screen, we've been seeing more and more film franchises that get doled out in episodes. So, are we headed for a big convergence where TV stories and film stories are told the same way? Here to talk about the TV-ification of film and what it means are... Scott Tobias. Nathan Rabin. Keith Phipps. So guys, is this the kind of thing that launches alarmist headlines? Like, are movies doomed to fail? Is this the end of TV as we know it? Like, is Veronica this... Mars and the Disappearing Movie. Like something like that. <laughs> I believe yes. Mr. Tobias uh, wrote a piece uh, to that effect uh, earlier this week. And that piece sounded just a little bit alarmist. Is this something we should be worried about? About the convergence? of TV and film. I yes. think it's something we need to monitor closely. Uh, you know, the, the, fact that, the fact that celluloid itself uh, is gone as a distinguishing uh, factor is, is one thing. Um, and, and another has and to do with the way... Would you see that as a, as a bad thing? You know, the, the, uh, the, yes. Yeah. And, then the, and then just the, the, the collapsing of various windows, you know, of uh, you know, theatrical first and then uh, television and then, you know, home video, or then video and then television, etc., um, you know, all those windows are, are, are collapsing and things are being released in different ways. And, and uh, you know, Veronica Mars is a very weird uh, movie, I think, uh, which I kind of detailed, I guess, in that in that piece. But um, but I, I don't know. I mean, it's 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 uh, in terms of like serialization, um, you know, movies kind of started that. Uh, if you look back at something like Les Vampire, that's what, 1919, Keith? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, and that 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 was a that was a serialized uh, movie. So TV, TV well, was taken. Unless, uh, lest we forget, there were also movie serials, uh, which, which totally. pretty much disappeared with with the uh, with the coming of television too. Uh, yeah, true, true. But um, I, I don't know. I mean, but I think I think when you really get down to specific examples, uh, the serialization part really has to do some, sometimes has to do with trying to capitalize on a property's commercial potential, and, and sometimes it has to do with just the practical ma- practical matters, which is that. An audience can't take in all this, all you know, three Lord of the Rings movies at once. Jodorowsky's Dune aside, nobody wants to watch a twelve-hour project. No, not at once. Right, and, and and we had an interesting discussion about this about around Nymphomaniac, where where you know, watching Nymphomaniac Part One, it's it is definitely Nymphomaniac Part One in that it's just it's not a complete movie unto itself. It's actually a pretty good stopping point for that movie, but but it's not the whole movie. I, I wasn't quite sure what what the uh, outcry over that would um, was was all about till I saw it. On the other hand, though, just practically. Uh, a four-hour movie is a tough sell. You know, yeah, a, yeah, two two-hour yeah. movies is a lot easier to sell. Uh, so that you have, like, there you have a movie that's being breaking down into, into, into basically into episodes. Um, right. Does that worry you as much, Scott? 
Uh, well, again, you know, I just have to have to kind of understand it and then hope hope to see see them unified later on sure. uh, down down the line because I, I would prefer just to sit down for four hours and and knock the whole thing out because it is it does it is a feel like a complete story. I haven't seen part volume two yet, but right. I, I think I can probably safely uh, say that that's going to be the case. But uh, you know, in the same same with Kill, Kill Bill and Kill Bill Part Two, I, I think uh, again the, there is a longer cut that has still not been released. Uh, uh, officially, anyway, in the in, in the U.S., that I, I'd love to see just the whole thing uh, in, in its entirety, uh, uh, working as one unit, and not having to not having to deal with the complications of of you know from a critical standpoint of having to review half a story. Right. I mean, getting back to uh, Tarantino, I think Grindhouse is kind of an interesting example of this, where it was very much presented as zeros four and a half hours. This is an experience. You go to the three. theater, you have a, in my mind, it's seven and a half hours. <laughs> it's three. It, it's it, three. Literally, it literally lasted three and a half days. You would just leave in the theaters. It was amazing. <laughs> Me and my bros, it was, I've wow. already like uh, buffed it up to an incredible, but it was presented as this immersive, like it's a thing. It is an experience. This is something you should look forward to. And when that just didn't work, they're like, okay, uh, let's make this a commercial proposition. Let's split these into two movies. It was just pretty much a- abandoned. Um, and, and I think that's part of it is, is I feel like even with uh, these different ways of distribution, it's still an event. I mean, uh, Nymphomaniac uh, Part 1 and 2 is still an event. That's still an experience. People are still excited about that. Uh, the same about Veronica Mars. Is There is this sense of excitement and anticipation. And, and yeah, I think there is some lessening, some things that are removed. But I think there's still people get excited about these movies. Well, let me actually talk, talk about that. If we're going to talk about Nymphomaniac as, as an event, event i think it's a really diffuse event I and mean, that's owed right. really to to the 21st century way of doing things which right. is which is that nymphomaniac volume one is was out on vod before theatrical and the same with part two and it's like you know nobody's watching it at the same time it's really hard to have any kind of cultural conversation about it because everyone's watching it you know in, you know in theaters or at home at different times and there's no like one you know, the, the, nobody can kind of rally behind it. Uh, Which is sort of funny given that, uh, you know, television used to be a little bit more like that in that, uh, you know, uh, first there was appointment television. Everybody was watching things at the same time. You know, the mm. MASH finale still has a record that probably nobody's ever going to beat because everybody was watching it at the same time. Then DVRs came along and everybody watched whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted. But now we seem to be, because of the cultural conversation, going back in a direction where uh, True Detective... Uh, to use an example, it seems like everybody was watching the finale at the same time to the point where HBO Go crashed. They couldn't meet the demand for everybody wanting to see the same thing in the same moment so they could have the conversation about it. So now you have a point where movies are being watched whenever you feel like it, but TV has to be watched a day and date so you can have the conversation. That's just sort of another way that they're crossing over and merging. I mean, I think there's still an anticipation and excitement around the release of big event movies. It just feels like there's fewer and fewer of those. I mean, it's something that we, we just in putting the site together, we, we had to address like how we're going to do it. And, and with things that premiere on video on demand first, we run the review twice. We run it when it runs on video on demand and we run it when it hits theaters. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like there's there's a lot of, in some ways there is an overabundance of titles and overabundance of ways to see a movie. And, and one thing we've tried to do is just like, every show people every way they could watch a movie that might interest them on the site too so uh that's something that if we would put the site together five years ago would not have been an issue at all it would be you go see it in the theaters and maybe maybe we alert it to you when when it's uh, out on dvd 
Yeah, I mean, it, it involves constant adjustment on our parts to, to do it uh, because because it, with something like VOD, you know, you get v, you get you get VOD before theatrical, the same day as theatrical, after theatrical. It, I almost feel like every week um, I'm playing playing detective. Yeah, <laughs> and I have I'm, to figure out figure out where detective? everything where everything's going to. Uh, yeah, I'm Woody Harrelson. It just it just feels a little like I, th- I feel like film is still a discrete form and television are discrete forms, mm-hmm. but but there's so there's so much. Melding of like the way we watch them. There's people watching more stuff at home, and and uh, and yet you know TV feels more quote unquote cinematic than ever. It, it's a very odd time to pay attention to these things. Well, let's talk. It's a, a bad little. time to be a purist too. In some <laughs> ways, <laughs> I say looking over at Scott. Yeah, yeah. it is a little. I, well, I you know I my problem is, and this is the this is really has nothing to do with serialization really, but but uh, my problem with the, the convergence of, of film and, and TV is is often uh, people talk about them in the same way using the same language and I feel like feel like the language of film is a little bit different uh, than TV let's it, let's talk a little bit that's about a whole that other because thing. that's something that Keith also brought up in terms of them being discrete media it used to be when people talked about what what films and TV did differently they'd talk about like the visual visual scope and uh, the expense of films the ability to have like better special effects and TV's ability to have like longer range stories and to develop the characters more and develop the stories more but now you've got series like uh, the Hunger Games or the uh, everything that's going on with Marvel movies where you can actually develop the characters over a long period of time and keep coming back to them and uh, like keep addressing their individual stories. Whereas we're getting uh, TV series that are telling one distinct story from start to finish. So in that, in that paradigm, what distinguishes TV from movies? What can one do in this medium that another can't at this point in time? I would say that... The- that t- movies still have an edge on TV for telling one self-contained, not, not that you have to do this with a movie, but if you want to tell one self-contained, deeply affecting story that lasts about the length of an attention span, there's movies, movies be, you know, have, have it all over television. There, there are advantages that TV has that movie doesn't. Like, I, I mean, I, I think Sopranos was really the first to do this, but to show, like, to you know, TV live with characters as they grow and change over the course of years, and and movies can't do that. Um, and but they don't don't have to. One thing, a sort of an interesting innovation uh, in film would be uh, Richard Linklater's uh, Boyhood, I believe it's called, uh, which does in film something that television has has been doing, which is to see people grow up, to chart you know relationships and uh, evolutions as they happen. You know, Richard Linklater made this movie over a period of what, twelve years or so. Um, so I think that's kind of an interesting, you know. But again, it's it's an anomaly, and that's something well, that television does all the time. Yeah, but I, I think I think the the point I'm getting to is is that it's is this, the self-containment of film makes it sets, sets it apart like uh like i love Mad Men, but it's sort of this, it is this this you know many hours long uh morass of, of storytelling uh that is uh wonderful and but it's distinct from film and it, it's its size alone makes it distinct from film whereas i i i film gives you something you know that individually you can grapple with that that's that's interesting uh as, as an object on itself well I, i'm kind of speaking in heady terms here mm-hmm. I, I want someone to just to, to translate this into passion for well me. i think right. my th- my thing that you know if you want to 
be really simple about it. TV is a is a writer's medium. Uh, I was film is, bring film that is a director's up. medium, and the reason why people are talking about True Detective as filmic is because you know it's directed by Kerry Fukunaga, who's got an incredible this really strong cinematic style, and it's not just TV cinematic. I hear the word cinematic thrown a lot, around a lot. It really does feel like a movie, um, um, it, it, you know, a real convergence and a kind of an exciting one, in my opinion. Uh, but but the majority of television, even that, that is called cinematic to me, just reads as television. What, um, what doesn't? I'm going to say Breaking Bad and Mad Men don't read as television. Yeah, but me. something like Hannibal yeah, Eastbound is, and down. feels like television. He's and down. But again, Joe, that's, that's, you know, that's like a Jody now. Hill Oh, series, uh, you know, he's he, he comes off of Observe and Report, which is really striking. Right, right. Uh, and he, it's just about... David Redden Green directs a lot. Exactly. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, I mean, the, the theory that TV was a writer's medium and that uh, film was a director's medium, I think in part came from films having more technical advantages, whereas TV had to keep track of these characters over a long period of time. And it was kind of assumed that directors would come in and out, but that writers would persist and keep things consistent. But now when you've got these like the... uh, like YA series that are being stretched out over time, there's more of an assumption that you're going to need the same writers and you're going to need that kind of consistency. And with something like Harry Potter, you've got directors bouncing in and out of the whole series. So how does that change things? It just, is it just are we going to lose that distinction between writers and directors' mediums? I think it's a case where where the lines are definitely blurring, just for the reasons that you, that you uh, uh, suggest. And and uh, to bring up a point that 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 Genevieve brought up is that. Um, you end up with with television being a reactive form. We have to respond to ratings. You have to respond to writers and uh, uh, to 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 uh, viewers complaining. You have to respond to what happens when when Angus Jones finds religion and 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 uh, and leaves two and a half men. And you have to start telling different types of stories on that show. And film hasn't had that to grapple with that that much. But then then now it kind of does with these ongoing series with with Marvel. Uh, with the Marvel Universe, and I mean Harry Potter is actually a really good example where I think there there was a sense after those first two films that they needed to 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 write the course where you know the films made money but nobody really liked them that much, and with the third you bring in Alfonso Cuarón and 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 you get a, a big uh, cinematic uh, experience um, with for the Harry Potter films that hadn't really happened before. So that's a case where where that like a television show they had to respond to the reaction and, and immediately and, and and change course. So yeah, that's another case. For they're, they're kind of becoming more like one another. But at the, at the same time, even Quaran still has to follow, you know, a pre-established template to a degree. Sure. I mean, and that, that, the same thing happened when you had a director change for Hunger Games. I think Hunger Games, the second one directed by... Francis Lawrence? Francis Lawrence is, uh, is much sharper... Uh, much sharper piece of direction uh, than than the first movie, but it still it still has to take place in that universe. It still has to be, have some continuity. Um, um, so I, I guess that's what it's, I think that, and that that's what really what happened with the, the Harry Potter movies, in, in my view. I think Quaron did maybe the most artful version of of those of those stories, but but ultimately um, it was about finding good craftspeople who could kind of continue uh, the house style, right? Yeah, exactly. it's it's probably the last thing you point to as as this is what makes Alfonso Cuarón great, but it's also my favorite of the Harry Potter movies in large part because of what he brought to it. Mm-hmm. 
It's, uh, it, I mean, it's always funny to me just in terms of fan reaction to see something really blatant like the second season of, Shma- of Smash kind of starting off by saying, hey, look, remember all these things you complained about? Not only have we fixed them, but we're actually going to point out to you that we fixed them, so it's okay. <laughs> but then at the same time, you do have the Marvel movies kind of doing that, like reacting to the popularity of Robert Downey Jr. and making Iron Man like a bigger part of the franchise uh, just sort of as you go. They, they do have that ability to react to what fans like and what what they don't like and and mutate things over time. And I I guess what it comes down to is, are people who are not Scott, who are not (laughs) purists, worried about this? Uh, Is it okay if long-term film and TV have basically become the same medium and the only difference is where you put your butt? (laughs) You know, if if you're seeing the thing with a group of people on a giant screen or in the privacy of your own home. Yeah, Scott's shaking his head violently. I I will shake my head a little less violently. Uh, And and there's always been cross-pollination. There's always been crossover and influences. I mean, a lot of uh, you know, uh, the French New Wave was, was responsible for the look of New Hollywood to a degree, but it's also you know, these TV directors, you know, who learned how to do these, you know, tricks on the fly and, and like Sidney Lumet who could make a movie faster than anyone else because he'd worked in live television, you know, it's and, and uh, you know, and sometimes the influence is good, sometimes the influence is bad. I remember um, sometimes you'll see movies like from the early 70s that, that are influenced by the, the really harsh lighting of television, like Torah, Torah, Torah. Um, all the interiors of that looked like they could be from like a 60s sitcom or something. And that's a, that's, that's a, that's a place where the influence is bad. But um, I don't know. I think we have to get used to the two forms conversing and maybe conversing a little more vigorously now than they have in, in, recent, in the recent past. Right. I mean, I think me and uh, Keith are both reading the same book about network. And yeah, it's kind of interesting to go back and, and look at like, you know, Marty, you know, 1955, uh, best picture winner, uh, best actor. And it was also a television movie uh, with the same director and the same first. writer. At first, right, right, right. Um, so it's literally, you know, and you're going back, you know, over 50 years, uh, something that, yeah. So nothing new. But uh, if you're going to talk about cross-pollination, I mean, if you're going to go back that far, I mean, look at look at somebody like John Frankenheimer, who is considered, you know, one of the most dynamic uh, you know, directors of live television around. But when he got to movies, I mean, that was... That was several gears up, I think, in terms of right. style. I mean, that, there there was in sophistication. Uh, yeah, but the point the point being that that um, a lot of you'll still see you could still see a lot of the quick on the fly compositions on like sort of the immediate uh, uh, ways of filming things that, that he learned on television in in the films that he made later. Yeah. Well, I guess what we can all hope for is that the cross pollination strengthens both mediums, that it makes, you know, TV more cinematic, more dramatic, that it makes uh, movies bolder about developing characters over time, and that they don't both just sort of reach for the most commercial aspects of each other and, and bring each other down. I mean, I think the cream will always rise to the top. I, I agree with Scott that we need to keep a careful eye on this, mostly because it gives us something to talk about, not because <laughs> staring at it <laughs> actually does any good. But we'll certainly keep an eye on it for everybody. Thanks, guys. Sounds great. Thanks. Mark Harris is an Entertainment Weekly and Grantland columnist who's also been published in Time, Slate, The Guardian, and The New York Times, among many other publications. But in film buff circles, he's probably best known for his stellar film journalism book, Pictures at a Revolution, about what 1967's Best Picture nominees said about the changes in cinema and culture at the time. 
In February 2014, Penguin Press published his latest, Five Came Back, which tracks the World War II experiences of five famous directors, what brought them to the war, what they did there, and how it affected their work. I'm here with editorial director Keith Phipps. Hello. To talk to Mark about his new book. Thanks for speaking with us, Mark. Oh, thanks for having me. <laughs> so the book is about uh, Frank Capra, John Huston, John Ford, William Wyler, and George Stevens. Why these five directors in particular? What, what led you to them? Well, they were all directors who uh, had extraordinarily successful careers. Um, Houston's was just beginning. The other four were already really established uh, before World War II. And uh, they were also the directors who, during the war itself, did the most, were the most instrumental in creating documentaries, went the most places, were most involved in the both the domestic and the military propaganda effort. Uh, and and on top of that, uh, they knew each other. They were they were colleagues. They were rivals. They were uh, competitors in the Oscars every year, which they did not actually stop caring about just because there was a war on. So it felt to me like these five guys would allow me to tell five stories, but also to tell one big story because they would keep running into each other uh, and 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 interacting with each other. And I did really feel all along that this was one large story, not five stories that could have easily been um, subdivided by director as told chronologically, which is what I do. How much did you know about these directors' experiences before starting this book? Um, not a great deal. You know, I've, I've been joking that this entire book is uh, about the IMDb gap. I mean, it's you know, I, I knew that William Wyler had made the Memphis Bell, and um, I knew about uh, John Huston's great uh, documentary, Let There Be Light, which he actually made after the war was over, but while he was still in military service. Um, and I knew about Ford's The Battle of Midway, and I knew that Capra had overseen Why We Fight. But, you know, my working knowledge of the war work of these five directors could probably have fit into a couple of... Um, uh, paragraphs. So doing the book was in, in some ways, uh, you know, a way of giving myself a, a, a crash graduate course in uh, the part of their careers that I had paid the least attention to. I think one of the most revealing elements to me was how much behind the scenes debate and struggle there was over what messages they needed to send. Like when you see the Why We Fight films, I always thought that was sort of like a monolithic expression of what the people behind the war effort wanted the public to see. And that wasn't the case at all, was it? No, it wasn't. And and one of the main things I wanted to uh, sort of tear into and break apart in this book was the myth that we all uh, tend to buy into that uh, unity is absolutely this monolithic thing that everybody had the same idea in the war of what to do and how to do it and when to do it and who to do it with. Um, you know, that wasn't the case at all. There, there was intense dissent and dispute all the way through about everything, large and small. And uh, that's especially true in, in what you just mentioned, the Why We Fight films, because, um, you know, George Marshall commissioned Capra to make these seven films, each about an hour long, uh, that were intended not for uh, public exhibition, but for showing to the American GIs, you know, many of whom were 18 or 19 or 20 years old, weren't really newspaper readers, didn't know much about the history of Europe or why America had gotten involved in the war other than Pearl Harbor. Um, the movies were intended to replace 
these very dry and dull lectures that uh, incoming GIs were given. But in terms of the answer to the question, why we fight, it was really remarkable to me that the army pretty much left it to Frank Capra and his writers to answer that. They said to Capra, we want you to make movies telling the American fighting man why he's fighting. They didn't say to Capra, we want you to make movies telling the American fighting man that this is why he's fighting. The this is something that Capra and his men came up with. It's kind of fascinating to me that some of them some of them work with the war effort in terms of, you know, their core talents in terms of making films, but some of them like physically went to fight in war, which just seems like unprecedented for our time period. It's it's a big deal if anyone remotely famous ends up in war. Was that contrast between the the different ways they approached the war part of the appeal with this set of people? Uh, absolutely. I mean, Part of the appeal was that, as you just pointed out, it was a completely different Hollywood and a completely different America that, you know, we, we can't imagine a circumstance where five of our leading directors would suddenly drop everything for four years now and uh, join a war effort. We also can't imagine a movie universe in which uh, three or four major studio movies a week would come out of the Iraq war or the war in Afghanistan. But that, you know, was very much the case during World War II. Um, the appeal of having these five guys uh, was not only that they approached um, war as from very different perspectives. I mean, uh, Houston saw it as an adventure. Ford, who was the only one of the five to join the Navy, saw it in a way as a test of his own courage. Um, uh, Capra saw it as a test of his, a chance to prove his Americanness because he was a Sicilian immigrant. But the other part of the appeal was that just on a kind of practical, strategic level, uh, when you put these five guys together, they were in an astonishing number of different places during the war. I mean, really, every place but the Russian front. They were in the North African campaign, the uh, Italian campaign, the war in the Pacific. They were at D-Day. Uh, uh, Stevens was at uh, the liberation of Paris and was the first director into the camps in Germany. Um, he was in the Battle of the Bulge. Weiler flew missions over occupied France and Germany. So it, it was just a great opportunity for me to not only tell their story, but uh, tell a, a kind of narrative history of a big part of the war through what they did. Whose experiences did you find most surprising when you got into researching this? Uh, surprising? That's, that's a hard question. I, I, was, I should say I was surprised by all of it because... You know, my background is obviously film, not war, and, and this was my first foray of any kind into war history. Um, I think what surprised me was I was very fortunate in that all five of these guys had, uh, their families had extensively archived their papers, and their papers included really personal things, not just uh, handwritten redrafts of scripts and memos and things like that, but uh, letters to their wives, letters to and from their children, letters to their parents in some cases, um, really intimate uh, material that gave you a feeling for uh, who they were as men. And um, I guess what, uh, what surprised me in many ways was how much their own feelings about the war and their work in it evolved during the years of their experience there, that, that 
um, you know, they all went in feeling that they had a job to do, and they all came out, I think, stunned to different degrees at how different their war experience had been than what they expected. Uh, I think they were changed as filmmakers, but I think they were also, you know, changed and, and very deeply shaken, certainly in the case of uh, Stevens, uh, as people by what they had seen and experienced. I think, I think Houston uh, became a much more uh, cynical uh, man after the war. I think Stevens, you know, talked openly about the fact that he didn't want to direct comedies again. Weiler came home as a disabled veteran, which profoundly affected the making of the best years of our lives. Um, Ford, I think, turned to questions of um, courage and sacrifice in his westerns for the next uh, 15 or 20 years that he might not have been as gripped by if he hadn't been in the war. So, so I think what surprised me most was, in a way, their surprise at how different things turned out compared to the way they expected, and how many decades that experience resonated through. Yeah, I was, um, I, I found those passages on Weiler and Stevens especially moving, and I, how much did they actually talk about those experiences? How much was it you digging into, um, in, into, into the papers and the archives? Well, it's an interesting thing. So, some of them talked more about uh, their war experiences than others did, and, you know, you get a very different sense of uh, what happened when you compare side by side, say, a letter that one of them wrote home in 1943 and an interview that one of them gave, say, 15 years after the war and reflections that um, they, they may have had about the war toward the end of their lives. You know, time changes a lot and it distorts some facts, but it also... Uh, can lead to more than just embellishment. It can lead to a kind of uh, enrichment of perspective. Uh, it was a really, really valuable thing uh, for me, especially since we're now obviously in an era when it's no longer possible to talk to anyone who had a very active uh, and important role during World War II. Um, starting in the 1960s, really, when American uh, film scholarship uh, started to be a thing, there were people who uh, interviewed these directors often for oral histories um, or unpublished manuscripts or, or projects that never resulted in, in you know, the publication of a full text. And those interviews were very often um, preserved in the archives. And, and for instance, when I was writing about uh, Stevens and his experience in Dachau, um, those oral histories were very, very important to me in being able to recreate his perspective with some degree of accuracy. Mark, you're, you're touring with the book a little bit, and uh, you're also doing a series of, of presentations um, and appearances. Where can people find out where to find you in their city? Uh, I think the best way to find out where I'm going to be is to follow me on Twitter. I tweet out all my appearances at MarkHarrisNYC. Um, and the Penguin Press, my publisher, also announces them. All right, thanks for talking to us, Mark. It's a remarkable book, and uh, uh, and uh, and uh, I want to congratulate you on a job well done. Thank you thanks so much. So 
it's time for our game segment, Parental Guidance Suggested, where we ask competitors to identify movies based on the user-entered parents' guide warnings on the IMDb. This week, in honor of Nymphomaniac, we decided to try a special edition of the game. I'm calling this Parental Guidance Demanded, because every single film in this game was at one point rated NC-17, and it should be pretty clear why parents are being warned away. Note that some of these films were rated retroactively or their ratings were changed at some point, so some of them may come from earlier than 1990 when the rating was first instituted. Uh, here to play the game are Scott, Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps, and Matt Singer. <laughs> Joining us retroactively and with a slight game-breaking delay from Skype. Uh, the Scott Tobias rule is in effect. People Ooh. are welcome to buzz in, but an incorrect answer will lose you a point. Let's get started. Here we go. A chainsaw is dropped on a woman from a great height. Scott Tobias. American Psycho. Very good. Yep. Very well done. Uh, I'm just going to read the rest of it because it amuses me. Although we don't see the chainsaw hit her, we do see the chainsaw sticking out of her back and blood pooling on the floor. A woman touches the watch. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> and I've seen that movie a lot. Okay, number two. The film revolves around the pornography industry, and a couple of the sex scenes occur in the context of making films. Boogie Nights. Yes. But the sex scenes are not very graphic. Only breasts, butts, and thrusting are shown. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. All right. All right. I'm not, not going to ask the question that needs asking at this point. No, you're not. Number three. <laughs> the film is designed to be viewed by adults only, not only because of the sex scenes, but because of the philosophical meaning and complexity behind the film. The masked orgy scene is very intense. Uh, that sounded pretty simultaneous. Scott, I'm going to give it to you. Eyes wide shut. Very well done. Uh, the mask orgy scene is very intense, surreal, and even somewhat disturbing. This is because the participants wear masks, which are very creepy. Mm-hmm. Number four. A man holds a chicken drumstick in front of his crotch and forces a woman to suck it, as if performing fellatio while he tells her to moan and grab him in certain places. Scott Tobias. Killer Joe. You are killing this one. Yeah, I, li- I, like, I, I, I like six shows, it, it, it is almost like you've seen all of the NC-17 movies yep. ever. And please tell me that this parental warning is having effect and you're not showing these to your kids. No, I do not. Number five. In a montage, the cast for the porno is seen holding lightsabers and laser pistols shaped like penises. R2-D2's testicles are also shown. Oh, 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 oh. Oh. Keith? Flash Gordon? No, it's before Star Wars. Scott? Orgasmo? Nope. Oh. Matt, you're going to pull off the trifecta? Let's hear it. Is it Zach and Miri make a porno? It is indeed. Yeah! Negative points for everybody who is not Matt. Matt scores and is on the board. Hey. Number six. A man comes into a room wearing the face of a woman's husband, which he had cut off, and the woman screams and thrashes as the man walks toward her. Scott Tobias. Devil's Rejects? Very nice. That one, that was the, just in case Scott hasn't scored yet question. <laughs> <laughs> You know, oh, yeah. I could have filled this whole thing with Rob Zombie movies. That's my screensaver. <laughs> <laughs> the horrible thing is that I believe you. Uh, number seven. A man cuts his foot off off screen. He screams with a gag in his mouth while his face is sprayed with his own blood. Matt Singer. Saw? You are correct. Uh, the rest of that particular warning goes, there is psychological reasoning behind every trap, as with the rest of the series, <laughs> as opposed to mindless violence. Uh, okay. <laughs> no. It's a thinker. Number eight. I love that the, this one is written so poorly, and I, I kind of love it, even though I really object to everything about it. The woman is in love with a music artist and takes her up to the room for sex. They kiss, and she thinks he is his new girl. She gets all worked. Scott? Or sorry, Keith? 
Showgirls. This is Showgirls, but I'm going to read the rest of this. She gets all worked, not to be rude, wet down between her legs. (laughs) Abruptly, two other men come in. The third guy strips fully nude behind the woman, no male penis scene, then puts puts his gene tiles in the woman and violently rapes her very fastly while she is screaming. (laughs) The scene goes back to Elizabeth Berkeley dancing. Oh, wow. Okay, number nine. I think that was written like... There's that... that, I, I can't make an Equestria Girls reference, but there's a whole thing where there's a whole thing where 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 like where like a pony goes back to like a human world and she just smashes the keyboard with her hands because she, she doesn't smashes know how to use it them. very fastly. I don't know, whatever. It's like written by like a, an Equestria Girl pony, basically that whole thing. But Equestria Girls is NC seventeen, isn't it? No, no, that that would be no. <laughs> okay, number nine. A man snaps a gun on a woman's leg. She is missing a limp below the knee, and she uses the gun to kill many zombies. Scott Tobias. Ah oh, shit! I I I, no, I fucked that up. I, um, you know uh, this movie. I know, but but I I thought it was something else for the beginning. Matt, so Matt. You, 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 I, I'm not. I'm, you, I, you're I, on the I'll board. Lose a point. You, you might as well make a guess. Well, I was gonna say crash, but it's not crash because there's, there's no zombies in crash. All right, Matt, you buzzed in. What, what do you got? <laughs> there there aren't. Uh, are the version uh, I saw. <laughs> Planet Terror. Correct. Whoa. We would have also accepted Grand House. Okay, so looking at score as we go into the final third, um, Scott has Scott Tobias himself uh, <laughs> back from what seemed like a towering victory. Matt is ahead with three, Scott has two, and Keith has one. Mm-hmm. Number 10, two girls mime oral sex while a cop masturbates. <gasps> Keith bad, Phipps. Bad lieutenant. It is. Oh, he is so such fast. a bad lieutenant. That was really fast Damn. knowing that one. Yeah, it's kind of the most uh. memorable scene of that movie as far as mm. I'm concerned. There are others. Number 11, a woman is run over by a car. There is a lot of blood shown when the car runs over and breaks her legs. Though not shown, a man amputates her legs. Some slapping. <laughs> <laughs> and the slapping put her Oh, whoa, wait, wait, wait. Scott Tobias? Boxing Helena? Very nicely done. Oh, can I do, can I do, my, can I, can I do my Julian Sands impression? I think it's required at this point. Oh, Helena. Oh, Helena. <laughs> you can only see how Scott Divides is flapping right now. Uh, you would really want to give him like 10 extra Yeah, points, I was flapping my arms and saying, oh, Helena. Which is what I kind of want to do at this point. All right, number 12. All the characters force the thief at gunpoint to cannibalize a piece of the body of a man he and his henchmen killed. We see him vomit over the sight of the corpse, which looks disgustingly delicious. Scott. The cook, the thief, his wife, and her lover. You are really a connoisseur of sick, sick shit, yep. aren't you, Scott Tobias? Bring it on. All right. Scott is storming ahead with four. Matt's at three. Keith's at two. What happened? <laughs> Number 13. A man lures a woman into his bedroom and has sex with her. However, this sex turns into rape once he begins to have sex with a chicken as well. Oh, <laughs> pink, pink flamingos. You are nice. correct. I, again, I'm going to yeah, read the rest have of this. sex with a chicken is is a really delicate way of phrasing what goes on in that scene. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's just read the rest of this. This is very difficult to sit through. We see blood from both the woman and the chicken as he rapes her. Please note the chicken was actually killed. It is 100% real. Do not watch if you are sensitive to animals. As John Waters would point out, they did actually uh, eat the chicken after that scene, so it was uh, not it as in- all so much better. That makes it yeah. less inhumane. Number fourteen: <laughs> Wine and beer are seen being consumed in several scenes. At one point, two of the outlaws take three prostitutes in a wine cellar and shoot open a large barrel. The Wild Bunch. Very good. I didn't even have to get to the part where they bathe and cavort under the leaking wine, and are later seen cavorting in a wine vat. 
Wow. Okay, so we've got Scott and Keith tied at four each, and Matt at four. Just, just like that, I'm back at the bottom. Sorry, and Matt at three. No, you're only barely back at the bottom. You pull this off, we will have a three-way tie. Oh. Or somebody could uh, triumphantly into the lead. If we do have a three-way tie, I don't have tiebreakers, so I don't know what mm. we're going to do. So let's find out. Number 15. A male doll prepares to masturbate and asks a female doll for inspiration, so she pulls down her dress, revealing her bare breasts. Keith Phipps. I'm going to take a guess here. Is take it, a guess here. Is it Bride of Chucky? You are so close, but no. Oh. Oh. Sorry, Keith loses a point. Anybody else want to uh, jump onto his almost victory? Matt? If he was close, I'm going to guess Seed of Chucky. You are correct. <laughs> Given the uh, masturbation, that wow. maybe should have become obvious. So let's see. We've got uh, huh. Scott and Matt at four to four. That's an exciting one. Okay, guys, here we go. This is for all the sicko points and uh, bragging rights around the part of the office that is impressed by people who know their NC-17 movies. Uh, this is just for Scott and Matt, your tiebreaker. The scene where the female addicts injure themselves with a double-headed dildo for the entertainment of a group of perverted men. You got it, Scott. What is Requiem it? Requiem for a dream. That's it. Oh, wow. <laughs> Scott, is this your first I am, game victory? Yes. I, yeah. you, you might say that I'm erudite. You're, you're erudite, but uh, yeah. Matt has proved himself to Dauntless by uh, by giving you a challenge. He did. No, all right. I watched all those perverted movies for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Not for nothing. Let's be frank. You watch them for yourself. <laughs> Thanks a lot for playing, guys. Thank you. And now, if you have a minute, you have time for the recommendation portion of our show, 30 Seconds to Sell, where we give two people 30 seconds each to convince us to take their recommendation of a film or something related to film. For an added level of competition, we make them go head-to-head, because who has time to watch more than one recommended movie? Uh, first up this week, we have Matt Singer facing off against Noel Murray. Matt, are you ready to go? Yes. All right, you have 30 seconds. Let's hear it. Okay, uh, I think between the original film, the R-rated cut, the 6,000 Dodge commercials, people are probably pretty sick of Anchorman by now, but I'm currently reading and enjoying Let Me Off at the Top, My Classy Life and Other Musings by Ron Burgundy. This faux autobiography chronicles Ron's rise to fame with very amusing digressions like his brief but passionate love affair with Bruce Lee. It is not a leather-bound book, but it doesn't smell, and it doesn't smell of rich mahogany, but it's still pretty good anyway. Under time. Very well done. Wow. wow. Way under time. You, you want to donate that extra six seconds to uh, the, the <laughs> Widows and Orphans old, Need Second Fund? I've been watching old uh, Micro Machines commercials to really <laughs> get in the zone. All right, Noel, you have a, uh, a tough road to beat, and uh, you do not have that extra six seconds. So uh, let's hear what you have to say. Go. Okay, my recommendation is The Friedkin Connection, a memoir by William Friedkin. I'm working on a column for The Dissolve on Friedkin, and I've been reading his book. Uh, I've interviewed him before. I've always found it to be very articulate, thoughtful, funny, and all that comes through in the book. He has a very wry sense of humor and sense of himself, a very terse prose style, a lot of short sentences, a lot of direct statements. Uh, He's very open about his failures, too, talking about the paths he didn't take, the movies he didn't make, uh, and uh, the movies he did make that didn't quite work so well. Uh, it's a really well-written and... Uh, I went one sentence too far. One sentence too far. Oh, one sentence too far. And you know what? Uh, I think because of that, I'm going to have to give it to Matt. Because, uh, quite frankly, uh, you both bought me books. I, I love you both dearly. Um, I am excited by both of these recommendations. Uh, and the, <laughs> the, I was I was going to say something about the uh, Ron Burgundy book sounding like less work, uh, which I'm always in favor of. But the the short, sharp sentences uh, and uh, and directness also sounds pretty appealing. 
selling. So it's going to be really, really hard. I'm going to give it to Matt strictly on technical terms uh, for going under rather than over. Uh, but those both sound like great books. Thank you both, guys. Well, that does it for episode 16 of the Dissolve podcast. We'll be back in two weeks with number 17. In the meantime, you can find the Dissolve on Twitter, Facebook, or Tumblr, and in website form at thedissolve.com. If you have any questions, comments, or topic suggestions for the Dissolve podcast, please send them to feedback at thedissolve.com. And if you're enjoying the Dissolve podcast, which we really hope you do if you made it this far, you can do us a huge service by rating us and leaving a comment on iTunes, which raises our public profile and means more people listening and showing up to argue with you in the comments. The Dissolve podcast is produced by Genevieve Kosky with assistance from Colin Griffith. Thanks for listening.